Turn with me, if you would, this morning to Luke, the fifth chapter, Luke chapter five. And if you are befuddled as to what in the world I'm talking about, I hope that our discussion this morning as I seek to exegete this particular passage here in Luke and try to bring it to your attention as to what Jesus is in fact saying, I hope it will become clear what the difference is between what biblical Christianity is and that which often passes for it in our day. What is the difference? Luke chapter 5 in verse 1, and at first glance this doesn't seem to have much to do with doctrine at all. It's the account of a wonderful miracle of our Lord. Luke 1 verse 1. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships. Now, ships is the word the King James uses. Boats would probably much be much more accurate. These are not ships. You know, when you say ship, I'm thinking of an ocean liner. This is a little fishing boat, probably bigger than a rowboat, but not a very large vessel at all. He saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon, answering, said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fish, and their net broke, and they beckoned unto their partners who were in the other ship that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draught of the fish which they had taken. And so were, so were also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus saith unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Let those words sort of ring in your ears. They forsook all and followed him. Did we not just last Sunday deal with the demands of discipleship? that we find in the 8th chapter of Matthew. You recall there was the man who came to Jesus saying, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my father. Seems to be a most reasonable request. I mean, who would be so hard-hearted as to not allow a man time off? And yet Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. Another man said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, the foxes have their holes, the birds of the air have their nests, the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Be careful what you say. And yet another one of the parallel accounts, a man says, I'll follow you, but first let me go back and say bye. And Jesus said, no man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. It doesn't matter the thing, whether it's your possessions, your money, your gold, your silver. 
Jesus says, he that does not forsake all to follow me cannot be my disciple. It doesn't matter the person involved, whether it's your mommy or your daddy or your son or your daughter or your wife or your brother or your sister. Jesus said, if you do not love me more than them, if a man hate not his father and his mother, his son and his daughter, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, you say, preacher, why are you making this so hard? I'm not making it hard. I'm just telling you what he said. That's his words. He's the one that said it. And you say, well, yeah, but you could get a whole lot more folks to follow if you wouldn't make this thing so difficult. Well, yeah, we get the numbers. Jesus had the numbers. He had a multitude following him. He's not interested in quantity. He's interested in those that are truly his. They are all together his. And how do you know it? They forsake everything. That is, everything is consigned to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When it comes to our money, it's not a question of whether we give 10% or 20%. My friend, if you're a Christian, you've given it all into His hands. He lets you keep a little to pay your bills with, feed your family and so forth, but it's His. You say, well, I got this car out there in the parking. No, it's his car. If you're a Christian, it's his. You say, well, wait a minute, I got this life to live. It's not your life anymore. He that hates not what? Father, mother, son, or daughter? Yea, in his own life also cannot be my disciple. Oh, the Christian realizes what Paul will say later, that we are bought with a price. We are not our own. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased. We've been set free. But a price has been paid for us and now we belong. As the old song we used to sing, now I belong to Jesus. Oh yes, He belongs to me, but I belong to Him. Now who in the world is going to do such a thing? Where are you going to find folks that will forsake all to follow Christ? Well, we found some in our text, didn't we? Fishermen. Now, these aren't fishers like you guys that went on that trip last week. You know, these weekend fishermen types. Go dangle a pole, dangle a line in the water for a little bit, see if you catch anything. And from what I heard, uh, they really, uh, well, first of all, the fish were in no danger from what I heard. And uh, also, the fact was, well, you really didn't care if you caught anything or not. The scenery was so pretty. You just got to be out on the river and enjoy God's creation. Really didn't matter that much. Well, let's put it this way. In the case of Peter and Andrew, his partners, James and John, fishing was another matter. This is their livelihood. This is what they do. It's their job. They're not out there for the fun of it. They're trying to make some money for their families. And they walk off. They absolutely turn their back on it all to follow Jesus. They forsake everything, literally, to follow Him. Yeah, there's some out there that will. We found some right here. Now, what in the world would happen that would cause four grown men in business for themselves to chuck it all, to follow Jesus. Well, that's what we find here in this very interesting account. First of all, let me give you the setting of the miracle. You'll see in verse 1 that 
There's a crowd of people thronging Jesus, and he is by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, Gennesaret was a small fishing village up on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And by the term lake of Gennesaret, you need to understand this is still the Sea of Galilee, but it's the part of that sea that is over against this little village. It's like a bay, if you think of it in that sense. Not a lake as we define a lake, but the bay, the part of the Sea of Galilee that came up against Gennesaret. There's a crowd of people there. It is obviously very difficult if you are being pressed by a large multitude to speak in such a way as to be heard. And so Jesus, spying these fishing boats that have been pulled out of the sea, and they're up on the dry land, and what we see here, these four men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, are in the process of washing their nets. They've apparently been out on the lake all night long, as we learn a little later from Peter's own statement. They've been out fishing, hadn't done very good. So they've come to shore during the day, And they are washing their nets in preparation for going back out the next evening. Jesus spotting these two fishing boats there on the shore enters into one and asks that Peter, and apparently Andrew is with him as we see from the account, will thrust out a little bit from the shore, out into the lake. First of all, this made a very excellent situation for Jesus to preach to the people. He's no longer surrounded by the mob, hounded by the press, as we say. He is out in the boat. And not only does he have the ability then to address the large number, but the natural surface of the water forms sort of a natural uh, amphitheater, we say, uh, amplification for his voice so that it is easy to hear him. In the days before microphones and things like that, you needed some sort of natural phenomena to allow you to address a large number of people. So he teaches the people. He utilizes the situation at hand to his advantage. But I would remind you there's more about to happen here than just a happy coincidence of circumstances. For let's talk about the setup of the miracle. After concluding his address to the crowd, he directs Peter out into the deeper water. And he commands Peter to let down his nets for a draw. In other words, cast the nets out of the boat and let's see what we catch. Now, Peter's words are so filled with sarcasm here, you can almost cut it with a knife. His idea is, I am the fisherman. You know, I'm the professional. You ever had anybody treat you that way? You know, I'm the professional. I'm the one who knows what's going on here. You know, if there were any fish to catch, I'd be out there catching them. And everybody knows you don't go out like this and catch fish, you know. And we've been out here all night long. The professionals have been doing the job all night long. We've caught absolutely nothing. They're simply not available at the moment. And so I will let down my nets for a draw. I'll do what you ask, but I want it known that, uh, you know, you make a fool of yourself before the crowd Sitting there on the bank if you want to. But you know, i got to live here. I've got a reputation to uphold. So I want it known from the outset that it's only at your word. I, I, Captain, I will let down the nets for a drop. But I want it known, I want it plain that this is not my stupidity. You know, i, I got to live with these people here. 
I want it known from the outset that I'm only doing it against my better judgment. I'm doing it at your direction. And we can imagine that no sooner had he gotten those words out of his mouth that something began to transpire and the rest, as we say, is history. You say, what happened? Well, I'd put it this way, all heaven broke loose. (laughs) Literally, chaos ensues because these nets become entangled with this huge school of fish and there is the cry for help from their partners, James and John, that are still up there on the shore and we can imagine their mad dash to try to get out and to assist Peter and Andrew. We find that the nets are so filled with fish that they're literally breaking and when they finally get the ships in the boat, there's so many fish that the boat is in danger of being swamped and sinking right out there in the middle of the sea. Now keep in mind, there's a crowd, the multitude, still up here on the seashore watching all this. Spectators. And in the midst of all the chaos and the confusion, you look over and what's Peter doing? Well, he seems to have forgotten all about the fish. He falls at the feet of Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And you say, why why is he doing that? What's going on here? What? I'm telling you that what's going on is that he got a glimpse of who he is dealing with. And he knew a man like him. There's no reason for him to want to accompany somebody like me. That this is somebody other than just man. And whenever in the Scripture that you find men's eyes open to behold the glory of God almost by reflex action, the next thing out of their mouth is something like these words. We've been studying Sunday school, the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, after Isaiah had been saying, Woe are they who do this, and woe are they who do this. In Isaiah chapter 6, he said, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and lifted up. Saw the seraphim crying one to another, Holy, 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 is the Lord God of hosts. So what's Isaiah's response? Does he say, oh my, how wonderful it is for me to be here in your presence, God. You know, it's such a wonderful feeling just to be here and masked in all this love. No, that's not what Isaiah says. He says, woe, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. When he sees the glory, the holiness of God, the next thing he realizes is his own unworthiness. You'll see it in the life of Job, as Job had complained all the way through the book. I just can't ever get my day in court with God. If he'd just show up, if I could just have a word with him, I'd straighten this mess out. And at the end of the book of Job, he has a word with God. And what does he say? I abhor myself and repent. I've heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now I see you and I abhor myself. That's the inevitable consequence. You say, how do I know that a man is seeing the glory of God? My friend, you'll have the symptom that he is keenly aware of his own sin. You know, we we used to talk in this language, at least when I was a boy, the dark ages it seems now, but we used to talk about people getting under conviction of sin. It was understood that you had to be under conviction of sin 
before you could ever be saved. Now, somehow we understood that, even with the theology that was less than perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we seem to understand that principle, whereas today that principle is just about disappeared. All you got to be sensible of is your poverty, or your, your hurting tooth, or whatever, and come to Jesus, you know. But in those days, you, it was understood that men needed to be under the conviction of sin before they could be saved. Now, why was that so important? What was it that I needed to be sensible and realizing my own sinfulness before I could be saved? It's the fact that that's the symptom of standing in the presence of God. That a man who does not have any sensibility of his own sin, of his own demerit, of his own unrighteousness, is hardly standing in the presence of God. You, You get the principle here, and here you see it in the life of Peter himself. You see, Peter has put two and two together. He knows fishing. It's his business. He knows the circumstance. He knows the score, as we say. And something has been revealed to him. You could say this didn't take a major prophet to figure this one out, to read the handwriting on the wall here. I mean, a minor prophet like Zephaniah can handle this. He can read the handwriting on the wall. He realizes that either Jesus is the luckiest guy you ever came in contact with. I mean, the very instant that he decided in front of the view of this big crowd to do what Peter thought was going to make an utter fool of himself. At that instant, this school of fish that had been swimming out there in the lake and they couldn't catch all night long just happened to come swimming by at the very moment that Jesus decides to make a display of his power and gets entangled in the net. That's option number one. This guy is really lucky. We use those words, don't we, when we talk about fishing. I've just about purged my language of the word luck. In every other area besides fishing. <laughs> I still tend to think that must have something to do with it. You know, I, I, I'm just hard-pressed to see divine providence at work when I go out there with a fishing pole. If you've had my success, Ted, you know, isn't that how you saw it last weekend, I suspect? You just sort of, I, I believe in sovereignty, but I tell you, that puts it to the test when I get out there with a fishing pole. And you see, Peter has got to think about this. Either this guy is the luckiest guy you ever saw. Or, option number two, he commands the very fish that swim in the sea. It's one or the other. And from Peter's response, there is no question which he believes It is. This speaks to him. He knows the score. He knows what the handwriting on the wall is saying. And so he falls at the feet of Jesus in the midst of all this chaos. And saying, what are you doing hanging around somebody like me? Well... It's a remarkable story. I love the story. I have to confess, this is one of my favorite incidents in the life of Jesus. And I've preached on it before. I'm sure you've heard me, many of you, preach on this passage before. But I've noticed 
that as I look honestly at this passage, the, though there's a lesson here to the crowd that was assembled on the shore, this was a sign to them that the Messiah has come. And that the Messiah has power, authority, even over the natural elements, over fish that swim in the sea. It's a sign of that. It's a wonderful testimony to that fact. It is a message to us in our day. We are reading their testimony of what happened in that day. And it convinces us of the divinity of Jesus Christ. But I would, to be quite honest with the passage, the main thrust of what happened that day was directed at one person. The main message was directed at Simon Peter. No matter what it spoke to everybody else, and it speaks volumes to everybody else, the intent was to communicate a message to Simon Peter. Jesus says, Peter, from here on out, you will catch men. Or as one of the other gospel accounts put it, I will make you fishers of men. Peter, you see what you've caught? You caught fish. But from here on out, you will catch men. I want you to think about that. I want you to think, first of all, of how this idea that Peter's mission and the mission of the other disciples was going to be like catching men, is that that very idea, that illustration, conveys to us then that we are then a lot like fish. Right? I mean, you're talking of men as if they were fish. And it started... You know, dawning on me how, how out that illustration is. First of all, fish, as we say, live in the ocean, or the sea, or the water, or the lake. And there's so many different kinds of fish. You think about it. So many varieties. And they're like people. For instance, there's the sharks. You know some sharks? Menfish? Well, how do you know the sharks? Well, they gobble up. They predators. You've swam with the sharks? You know what I'm talking about. There's some goldfish. Some of these folks, everything they touch turns to gold. There's the swordfish. There's the fighters. The military. There's even some catfish, the bottom feeders. You know some of them? I mean, you think about it. What a marvelous way, and the more I think about it, the more it seems so right to think of men in this world like fish in the ocean. I mean, look at fish. Some of them are pretty. Some of us are pretty. I should say some of y'all. I mean, some fish are so pretty. They're so colorful. They're so striped. You know, they got all these, these tropical fish. Beautiful things. And then there's some old bullheads. 
carp. Ugly, ugly. You think about the variety of fish, just like there's a variety of men. There's the sport fish. I'm thinking of just in trout alone. Trout's what we used to fish for out in the mountains. We had the goldens up in the high mountains. We had the cutthroats down in the lake. We had the rainbows, the pretty ones. All sorts. Think about their size. I mean, you got fish that range from a whale shark that could swallow you whole to a guppy. I mean, we talk, you know, some of us, some of us are big fish. At least we're big fish in a small pond. We, we think we are, and then we get up against some really big fish and we don't look so big anymore. And then think about the nature of fish. I mean, what are they all about? What do they do? Basically, they just swim around and they try to eat without being eaten. And isn't that a pretty good description of life here on this earth, of man under the sun? We're not in the water, we're in the air. But we're living our lives just basically trying to feed ourselves without winding up food for somebody else. Without going, as we say, belly up. Floating on the surface. We spend our days with that worthy pursuit to gobble up others without being gobbled up ourselves. You say love makes the world go round? No, it doesn't. That's what makes the world go round. That's the principle of this present world. Now, that's the circumstance. That's the illustration. That's the description of men like fish. And then, secondly, I want you to notice the difficulty of catching men. I mean, it is difficult to catch fish, isn't it? Ted, stand up and give us a testimonial this morning of how difficult it is to catch fish. May I point out the same thing is true when we talk about catching men? The task that Jesus has called Peter to do, it's just as difficult. In other words, first of all, the fish are hard to catch because you don't know where they are. I mean, that's a real problem. You're out here in a boat, let's say, or the bank, up above the water, and they're living in the water, and you don't know where they are. We go to the store, the sporting goods store, we buy us a fish locator these days, put on our bass boat so that we can find out where the fish are. Jesus didn't need a fish locator. He knew when and where the fish would be, didn't he? He knows where his fish are going to be. Have you ever thought about the ministry of Christ? I know we've given these illustrations, these people over and over again, the people that were clearly affected and transformed by the earthly ministry of Christ. But had you ever thought about the fact that he knew exactly where they would be, when? that in the morning and the evening, here she comes out in the middle of the day, drawing water, but he knew at exactly the right place, the right time, here's where the fish going to be. When he marched through Jericho, he gets halfway through town and looks up in a tree and there's a fish. Zacchaeus by name. Zacchaeus, come down here. we got to go eat at your house today. I'm just giving you those as an example. And, and of course, there's that big shark. You know what I'm talking about. Saul of Tarsus, 
one of those predators, big fish, on his way to Damascus. And Jesus knew. You notice, ever thought about that? You reckon Jesus had to go several days or wait a while? Did he miss him? You know, he, he, he somehow got the wrong day. Saul got there a day early or something. You ever thought about how ridiculous that would be? He knew exactly where he would be at exactly the right time. He knows where fish are. Now, that's one of the difficulties of catching fish. But my friend, you got somebody like Jesus. You don't need to go down to the sporting goods store and buy you a fish locator. He knows where the fish are going to be. Exactly the right place, exactly the right time. And then secondly, you've got another problem with catching fish. Is that fish don't generally cooperate in this process. We sometimes use the expression, well, they're biting so good they're just practically jumping in the boat. Well, the fact is, fish don't jump in the boat, at least not on purpose. Uh, you hook the fish, what happens? Is he saying, oh, you know, I've just always wanted to leave the water. Well, he fights like crazy to get loose. Fish are not very cooperative. As bad as it is in the water, I mean, you say, fish, why do you want to stay in the water? You're just going to wind up being fish bait. You know, you're going to get eaten. But the fact is, is they don't want to leave their environment. They don't want to leave the so-called atmosphere. I realize it's sort of strange to talk about waters being atmosphere, but they don't want to leave that. They don't want to leave their environment. They're at home there. It may be dog eat dog. No, no. Why do we say dog eat dog? Fish eat fish. That's what it's going on down there. It's a fish eat fish world down there, but they don't want to leave it. You begin to see how much like people fish are? You know, as much as men realize how vain, how empty this life is, how foolish, how utterly it leads, I mean... Basically, you spin your wheels, work your fingers to the bone, and what do you, and if they tell him, what happens? You die. If this life is all there is, why in the world do you fight so hard to stay here? Why do you resist when Jesus comes to call men out of the world? Why do sinners fight so hard to stay in a world that's consuming them? That's preying upon them. That's destroying them. Does that make any sense? Why won't the fish happily leave his environment? Well, you know as well as I do that they fight to remain free, fight to remain unsubdued and unrestrained. And so it is that Peter may know how to catch fish fish, but he must be taught how to be a fisher of men. May I say, I'll give you a hint right here. It's not just that Jesus is a fish locator, fish finder. He's also a fish commander. It wasn't that Jesus just happened to know when this school of fish going to be swimming by. It's clear, from the, it's clear from the miracle that he commands the fish to swim by. And so I want you to notice that throughout this statement, I realize we don't read it this way very often, but this is what the words say. Look, verse 10 again, Jesus says, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. I want to point out to you the utter certainty of which Jesus speaks here of Peter's success in catching men. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus didn't say, now Peter, we're going to try it. We're going to put a pole in your hand. We're going to set you out there on the boat or on the dock. And we're just going to turn you loose and see if you can have any success in this matter of catching men. 
You know, we're just going to give it the best shot you got. Just do your best. We'll see if something happens. Now, that's what happens when I go fishing. But Jesus doesn't say, Peter, we're going to just give it our best shot here. We're going to see if you can catch some folks. He says, thou shalt catch men. As he said in the other account, I will make you fishers of men. In other words, the commander of the fish, who has just put fish, fish, i got to make a distinction here between fish, fish, and men, fish, but the commander of the fish, who just has filled Peter's nets with fish, fish, is saying to Peter, I will fill your nets with men, fish. Now, I talked a moment ago about the difference between the gospel of the Bible and the gospel that pervades our day, and it's basically at this point right here. Those other gospels say that Jesus just came along and he sent us out to just do the best we could, see if we'd have some luck, go out there, see what would happen. The Bible gospel doesn't speak in those terms. It speaks of something that will be successful that Peter is not just to try his heart out. He is, in fact, to go out and catch men, and Jesus will make him a men fisher and a men catcher. Let me ask you, that, those are big words. I could say the same to you, and nothing would happen, nothing would change in your life. But when Jesus gets through with Peter, does Peter catch men? I mean, as we say, the proof is in the pudding. Does he, in fact, turn out to be a catcher? A fisher of men who actually catches men? Could you say he got a big net full? Well, look on the day of Pentecost. Peter is the one preaching. 3,000 souls. He threw the net out and man was it filled. A few days later, the man laying there by the temple that Peter and John come by and Peter says, such as I have, uh, you know, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I to thee. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he does, and the big crowd gathers, and Peter preaches to the crowd the second sermon. This time, 5,000 souls added to the church. Big draughts, we would say, of fish. It is Peter who will go to the household of Cornelius, to those crazy Gentiles, as we say. He'll preach the gospel. And before he can even get through this sermon, the Holy Ghost falls upon them, and they believe on the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not in any way implying that the fiction of the Roman Catholic Church is true, that somehow Peter alone had such responsibilities, or the biggest fiction that somehow Peter's office could be transferred to someone else. No, the apostles were unique in that sense. But I'm just having you notice that the words of Jesus here are not expressing possibility, they're expressing certainty. And the certainty that Peter would in fact accomplish the mission to which Christ is sending him is borne out in the history of the early church in the ministry of Simon Peter. What Christ promised he was able to perform. He made him a fisher and a catcher of men. But, but how are you going to do it? How is he going to catch men? Now when I talk about the how... I mean the means, the instrument that will be employed. 
Now, there's a lot of different ways to catch fish. There's the old dynamite method. <laughs> Highly frowned upon by the game wardens, but it works. There's that way. The way that we usually catch fish, we get us a pole. We get out there with some bait. We throw it out in the water. How did Peter catch fish? He threw a net out into the sea. Now, I have long thought that there in that little picture that I hope I've painted in your minds this morning of a man sitting with a pole in his hand, fishing for fish that way, and Peter throwing a net out into the sea, fishing that way, illustrates two ways to go about fishing for men. One the wrong way, one the right way, the biblical way. First of all, when you say you fish for men with bait, what do you mean? Think of, you know, what's the principle that you're relying on? When you put a worm on a hook and stick it in the water, that's probably the simplest way to catch fish, probably the way we started out catching fish. What is the principle that we are relying on? What's, what's the power, what's the mechanism that we are dependent upon for success? Is it not the nature of the fish? Fish get hungry. They have an appetite. They see a worm, and it happens to be what they like. What they don't see is the hook, that which they do not like. But we use what they like to get them hooked. Hooked on Jesus. Well, we know people aren't just going to come to Jesus. I mean, just old naked hook. So what do we do? We put a little bait on there. And you say, well, what do you mean by bait? I mean that which men by nature like. Why do you suppose this gospel of health and wealth is so popular in our, in our day? My friend, that's what everybody wants. Who, if I ask, you know, who wants to be poor this morning? Raise your hand. How many folks am I going to get? Who wants to have some money today? You all want it. We all want it. That's the natural appetite of man. So put that on the hook. And on and on. I'm just using that as an illustration. But I'm telling you that that is the approach of so many in our day is you dare not just preach Christ. That's that just old naked bare hook. Nobody who in their right mind, who have no desire for Christ, who have a nature that delights in anything but Christ, nobody's going to come on that basis. Put some bait on that hook. Dress him up. Cover him up. Don't let anybody see the cost, the price, the demands. Make him look like something you'd want. Well, there's that way. And then there is the biblical way. I say it's the biblical way because every single time Jesus ever talks about making men fishers of men in this context that we've talked about, you know what's always laying around? There's a net. Throwing a net into the sea is another way to catch fish. Now, just like I asked a moment ago, when we put a bait on a hook and put it out there, what are we relying on? What are we, what are we trusting for our success? And I'm telling you, we're basically trusting in the appetite of the fish himself. We're appealing to the nature of the fish. That's what our hope of success is. When I throw a net out into the sea, what am I relying on? 
Well, I'm going to use this word again. From my point of view, blind luck. You say, well, I'm going to put a net out in the sea. And fish just love nets, so they'll just come swarming from all over the ocean to my net. That's not the principle, is it? When I throw a net out into the sea, I'm basically relying on the ability of that net to constrain and to draw. And you say, why is it that the fish was in that net? From my point of view, I can't explain it. He just happened to be there. He just got caught in it. Now, I'm not saying that luck has anything to do with this, you understand. I'm just saying that from my point of view, that's how it appears. It just happened to be this fish instead of that fish. This kind of fish instead of that kind of fish. And it brings all kinds, good and bad, pretty and ugly, the best in the world. It just catches everything in its path. In other words, the net is my instrument of bringing men in. What is the net, do you suppose? If we were to ask ourselves in the case of Peter, what was the instrument that he used? We talked about how he got that big catch there at Pentecost. What was he using to fish with? It was nothing but the bare preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, not in itself something that men are going to come running to. Foolishness, Paul calls it, not wisdom. In our eyes, weak, despised. But my friend, that's the net that the apostles cast into the sea. And the net whereby they laid hold of men and brought them, as it were, to Christ. It's the physical thing they used. It's the instrument. And it constrained men to come. It caught folks that wouldn't have come any other way. They didn't intend to come. They weren't out there swimming in the sea saying, Please get me. You know, please catch me. Here comes a net. I'm going to make a beeline for it. They just got caught. That's all they know. They got caught in this thing. And they don't understand it. I mean, think of old Saul of Tarsus marching down the road to Damascus intending with all his might, with all his will, to persecute the people of Christ, and he got caught. That's how, what else would you say? He got entangled in this net, and he couldn't get loose. In fact, listen to the words of Paul as he described it over in the book of Philippians as he gives his testimony. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection. I want to apprehend that for which I have been apprehended. I want to lay hold on that for which I've been laid hold. You see, the very language of His conversion is that I was intending to do one thing and something, someone came to me and overpowered my stubborn will, my resistance. And not because of me, but in spite of me, I was drawn to Jesus Christ. That's how people come to Christ. Something gets them. Something apprehends them. Something lays hold of them. And they really can't tell you why. In fact, from our point of view, we just say it's luck. 
his luck. I, I heard one guy give his testimony, and he's, he didn't know anything. All he knew was he's sitting there on the end of the pew, and he was miserable, and he finally just couldn't do anything but surrender to the will of Christ. Somebody he was talking to the next day, telling about all this wonderful stuff, and he said, well, how, how do I get that? And he says, well, all I know to do is go to that pew, count, count back four pews from the front, and sit right there on the end, and you know, just see if that same thing will happen to you. You see, that's all it is. It's just luck. Oh, Victor Bernard said in some of the old English versions of the Bible of the Beatitudes, where we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are they that mourn, and blessed are these. They said that old English version reads, lucky. Lucky are the poor in spirit. Lucky are they that mourn. Because he says from man's point of view, that fellow down there in hell looks up and sees you in heaven and says, man, that guy's lucky. Talk about being at the right place at the right time, and it's just easy, just lucky. You see, from man's point of view, that's how it appears. It's how it looks. But from what we know from the Scripture, even of that passage we read earlier in the responsive reading, luck has absolutely nothing to do with it. God has a people. And He not only can catch them, He will catch them. He will not have His Son die in vain. He's going to give Him a people. It will not be fruitless. Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. The Father's given Him a people, given Him some sheep, and He's not going to lose one of them. He knows them by name. He knows them even when they're lost sheep. And He will leave the ninety and nine to go fetch that lost sheep. Praise God, He did so in my case. He came and found me, put me on His shoulders, and brought me back to the foe. Praise God. you have any regrets? Barry, you got any regrets that Christ came and fetched you out of your life? A little bit I know about your life. You shouldn't have any regrets. Why in the world? Would he come to somebody like Barry Godwin? Why? Why? And I picked Barry out. I could pick out almost any face in this crowd. Why would he come to me? Why would he love me? Why would he go and search for the lost sheep? Why would he put me on his shoulder and carry me back? Why? Only one word I can think of. Grace. Grace. Jesus, in the Great Commission, we call it, the end of Matthew 28. You know, the boys had been fishing in a little old pond. They'd been fishing in Israel. In the Great Commission, Jesus sends them out to the big pond. Seven seas. Go out in the ocean now and spread your nets. Go teach all nations. And he says, tell them, those fish you catch, tell them to do what I've told you to do. Did he tell them to go fish? Well, he did. Uh, will you then tell those fish you catch to go fish? You see, he turns each of us into fishers of men. Every fish caught becomes a fisher. Someone who is desirous to see those around us drawn to Christ our Master. 
may we be successful in that task because, my friend, we not only have a fish locator, we got a fish commander. Let's pray. Father, bless us in the thought of all of this today. May we lose ourselves in the wonder of our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we honor Him in all that we do. May we be involved in this great work, this task that He sends us into this world to do. But Lord, may we do it because we can't get over the fact that once we were swimming free, loose, wanting one thing just to be free, do our own thing, never realizing the rat race that we were in, the circle that we were running. And along came grace. Along came this wonderful message of a Savior who saves sinners by His own blood. And we can't explain it. We don't understand it. But we were caught. And we were drawn. It laid hold of us. We saw something in Jesus Christ. The same thing Peter saw. We saw glory. We saw wonder. We saw God. And we saw ourselves and wondered, why? Why would He love me? Why would He associate with a sinner like me? But He came and He spoke peace. He showed us His nail-scarred hands. And we fell in love. And we forsook all. And we followed Him. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for the wonder of sovereign grace. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.